Today I want to give you some of my favorite little highlights from 2nd Nephi 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Look at the chunk <laughs> they gave us in the Come Follow Me manual. First of all, in 2nd Nephi 11, we kind of have a, a hint of why these chapters might be placed where they are. 2nd Nephi 12 through 24 can be like a speed bump for a lot of people. And as you know, I've mentioned before, I, when I f- was first given the opportunity to teach Book of Mormon, my two worries were the war chapters and the Isaiah chapters. I ended up writing a book about each one. But in Isaiah for Airheads, I talked about this idea. You give the Book of Mormon to somebody, and they're going along just fine with the story of Lehi and Sariah and the family, and then all of a the sudden they hit these Isaiah chapters, and wow, what do I do with this? And I love that Elder Holland mentioned this, this idea of hitting that. First, let me read 2 Nephi chapter 11. The big block of chapters is 2 Nephi 12 through 24. And in 2 Nephi 11, Nephi says, And now I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah. My soul delighteth in his words, for he verily saw my Redeemer. Okay, there's one witness of Christ. Even as I have seen him, there's two witnesses of Christ. And my brother Jacob also has seen him. There's three witnesses of Christ, as I have seen him. So Elder Holland commented on Nephi's comment and said, After reading these three witnesses from the small plates of Nephi, the reader knows two things in bold relief, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that God will keep his covenants and promises with the remnants of the house of Israel. And when I teach Book of Mormon, I have my students look at that title page. And notice that Christ and covenants are there, and that is one of the main themes of Isaiah as well. 2 Nephi 12 is uh, a lot about the mountain of the Lord's house and the, the temple, and how nations will flow unto it. As you read 2 Nephi chapter 12, you may think you are hearing lines from high on a mountaintop, a banner is unfurled. <laughs> you may think you're singing a hymn as you see that. Let me give you a couple of fun highlights. One of them is 2 Nephi 12:7. Their land is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. When you see horses and chariots in Isaiah, think of military might. Horses and chariots. It reminds me of something President Spencer W. Kimball said. When enemies rise up, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, fortifications, and depend on them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We forget that if we are righteous, the Lord will either not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is the special promise to the inhabitants of the land of the Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. So, in the war chapters, they make fortifications, they make swords, and they make weapons, but it always starts with spiritual preparation first. And that's what President Kimball is is warning about here. We can't rely on our horses and chariots to protect us if we're not being righteous. Okay, so that's one highlight from 2 Nephi 12, and maybe another one, is in verse 16. 
talking about the, the day of the Lord he'll come down upon, verse 16, and upon all the ships of the sea, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. And most of us read that and have no idea what it means. There is a little explanatory footnote. Footnote 16a says the Greek Septuagint has ships of the sea. The Hebrew has ships of Tarshish. The Book of Mormon has both, showing that the brass plates had lost neither phrase. Now, let me elaborate. The footnote folks were saying that in as few words as possible. But this is actually a very exciting little gem inside of 2 Nephi 12, which is Isaiah chapter 2. The scholars get excited about 2 Nephi 12.16 because it comes close to a proof that the Book of Mormon is ancient. The oldest existing Hebrew text, or the Masoretic text, was dated about 250 BC, contains only the phrase, ships of Tarshish. The Book of Mormon restores both phrases, showing that it came from an older text of Isaiah than either existing text. In other words, it came from the plates of brass. And there's no evidence that Joseph Smith had any access to the Septuagint, and he couldn't read Greek at the time anyway. So the only explanation that 2 Nephi restores both phrases, the ships of the sea and the ships of Tarshish, the only explanation is that the text in the Book of Mormon came from an older source. And it indeed was, we believe, translated by the gift and power of God. So that's just kind of a fun little thing there. Now in 2 Nephi 13, we have this long list of, I call them successive excessive accessories. And please remember that the daughters of Zion are not this, this, I mean, one way to apply this is, you know, vanity and jewelry and fashion and stuff like that. But when you think about the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride or his people, this is all of us. The daughters of Zion is all of us. And the most hurtful thing that uh, somebody who is engaged to someone else could do is try to go out and attract other lovers. And that sounds like what this is happening. The daughters of Zion are haughty, walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. It says in 2 Nephi 13, 16. They're out trying to attract other lovers when they're already betrothed or engaged to Christ. So he's talking about this kind of unfaithfulness. And I like in verse 9, we'll take off on that for a minute. The show of their countenance doth witness against them. Now, we often say you can't judge a book by its cover. And that's true for books. But Joseph Smith taught once that you will always discover in the first glance of a man, in the outlines of his features, something of his mind. Interestingly, Elder Spencer V. Jones was attending a youth fireside with Elder Richard G. Scott, and Elder Jones said, I noticed five youths scattered among the congregation whose countenances or body language almost screamed that something was spiritually amiss in their lives. After the meeting, when I mentioned the five youths to Elder Scott, he simply replied, there were eight. And then Elder Jones quoted that verse, their countenance doth witness against them. That is from your April 2003 General Conference and Elder Spencer V. Jones's 
address was called Overcoming the Stench of Sin. Wow. Okay. Second Nephi chapter 14. This is like Isaiah 4. It's very short. And one of the most interesting things I could say about this chapter is that verse 1 probably belongs to the previous chapter, the last verse. In fact, this is the last verse of Isaiah 3 in the Hebrew Bible, the German Bible, and in the JST. And that can explain the sudden mood change. Because you go chapter 14, verse 1, seven women shall take hold of one man, which kind of explains the scarcity of men due to wars. But then verse 2 goes into this really positive thing. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be glorious and beautiful. And this may refer to a remnant of the house of Israel or a righteous branch. So after that, it's kind of a celebratory verse. And verse 6, there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and a covert from storm and from rain. Remember that our hymn, Redeemer of Israel, a shadow by day and a pillar by night. In our culture, the perfect day could be described like sunshine and not a cloud in the sky. But to desert people, a cloud was a blessing and had the potential for rain. And so Isaiah elsewhere wrote, For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat. When the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. That's Isaiah 25, 4. Oh, so much. Second Nephi 15 is Isaiah's only parable, I believe. It starts with a harvest, and he's talking about everything he did for his vineyard, and it produced wild fruit. It didn't work. So, in anciently, the time of harvest was a time of celebration. That's even true today. Brigham City has peach days, and Pleasant Grove has strawberry days, and Bear Lake has raspberry days, and those are just ones I know about in Utah. Well, way back in Isaiah's day, they might have called it grape days, and the men of Judah composed and sang grape harvest songs to be shared in Thanksgiving. Isaiah composed this song, and he said, I will sing a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. And he did everything he could, but it brought forth wild fruit. And it reminds us of Zenus's allegory of the olive trees in Jacob chapter 5. He even has language that sounds like that. What more could I have done for my vineyard? And his, the people answer, we can't think of anything you could do. You had a choice vine. You built it in the, um, a tower in the midst of it. You made a wine press therein. You fenced it, gathered out the stones. And then, after they say there's nothing more you could have done for it, Isaiah says, well, you are the vineyard. Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. He looked for judgment. When I see judgment in Isaiah, I always change it to justice. I'm in 2 Nephi 15, 7. He looked for judgment or righteous judgment or justice, and behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. So he has taken care of this vineyard, but it's not producing righteous fruit. That's just a highlight from 2 Nephi 15. I want to get to 16 because 2 Nephi 16 is Isaiah's call. 
And I think it's one of my favorite chapters of Isaiah. He is invited into to see God. And in verse one, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, there's no good, better, best in Hebrew. So instead of saying holy or very holy or most holy, they just say holy three times. And that's the, the superlative, the ultimate, and often connected with God when you have threes. Isaiah sees this and says, I am undone. And I know you've probably heard and read about this before. An angel flies and brings a coal from the altar and lays it upon Isaiah's mouth. It's something to listen to and hear more than to imagine. But if there were, if this were the uh, altar of sacrifice, there would probably be blood on the coals and just think of it as the blood of the sacrifice touching Isaiah's lips and cleansing him. So it's kind of a symbol of the atonement. And Isaiah kind of receives his, his mission call here. And he's told the people will have a hard time. They won't understand you. So go and tell the people, verse 9, Hear ye indeed, but they understood not. See ye indeed, but they perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and be converted and be healed. Now, one of my professors, uh, Paul Hoskison, said that we can understand this a little better if instead of make the heart of this people fat, we say declare the heart of this people to be fat. So Isaiah is saying, your hearts are fat. They are insulated from the truth. And if you would only see with your eyes, hear with your ears, understand with your heart, you can be converted and you could be healed. It's really interesting to me that when Jesus starts teaching the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, the apostles come to him afterwards and say, why are you teaching in parables? And he actually quotes the calling of Isaiah. Why would he do that? Well, the calling of Isaiah kind of explains that some will see but not see, they will hear but not hear, and that parables are kind of as you've heard, both to conceal and to reveal. So in Matthew 13, it says this. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross. So in 2 Nephi 16.10, it says, Make the heart of this people fat. Here's Jesus repeating it a little differently. This people's heart is waxed gross. Their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. So Isaiah's call was so much on the minds, I think, of the New Testament writers that it, or a version of it, is repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
and even in the book of Acts. And think about it. This is like, you know, the heart of the gospel. We can see with our eyes, hear with our ears, understand with our heart, and be converted and be healed. And Isaiah is told, you're going to try to present the gospel to people, and they will shut their ears and shut their eyes, and their hearts will be insulated from the truth. And Isaiah says in verse 11, how long? And the answer isn't very positive. Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. The only positive thing here in Isaiah's call, 2 Nephi 16, 13, is, is the last verse, 13. But yet there shall be a tenth, and they shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. One of the interesting things about Isaiah in lots of scriptures is that trees are often people. The vineyard is often people. Interestingly, Dr. Terry Ball, who's an archaeobotanist, says the trees mentioned here, the oak and the teal tree, can have all their leaves eaten off, can even be chopped down, but will regenerate because the sap or substance is still within. So that's what we can see there in verse 13, that they'll return. There will be a remnant that will return as an oak or a teal. The substance, the sap is still in them. And that's the, the positive note for Isaiah who asked how long. Well, that's probably enough for today. It is interesting though, that as we look at 2 Nephi 19, we have this birth prophecy. 2 Nephi 17 speaks of a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son. This is the prophecy to... This is how I explained it in my book, Isaiah for Airheads, that you have in 2 Nephi 17, 18, and 19, you have three chapters and three birth prophecies. 2 Nephi 17 is the Emmanuel prophecy. Probably... Isaiah's wife is the most, the first fulfillment of this. Second Nephi 18, the first fulfillment of the birth prophecy is Isaiah's son, Mahar Shalal Hajbaz. And second Nephi 19 is the later ultimate fulfillment birth prophecy, the prophecy of Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Oh, you can hear the music in there. Second Nephi 19.6. So that helped me a lot. Oh, okay. I've got three birth prophecies and perhaps three fulfillments in these different chapters. Let me... Close with what Elder Holland said. There are parallel elements to this prophecy, as with so much of Isaiah's writing. The most immediate meaning, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, was probably focused on Isaiah's wife, a pure and good woman who brought forth a son about this time, the child becoming a type and shadow of the greater, later fulfillment of the prophecy that would be realized in the birth of Jesus Christ. The symbolism in the dual prophecy acquires additional importance when we realize Isaiah's wife may have been of royal blood, and therefore her son would have been royalty of the line of David. 
Here again is a type, a prefiguration of the greater Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David, the royal king, who would be born of a literal virgin. Indeed, the title Emmanuel would be carried forward to the latter days, being applied to the Savior in section 128, verse 22 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So I just quoted there from Christ in the New Covenant in page 79. Oh, that was a lot. Sorry if it was confusing and I was trying to go fast. But bottom line, what are these Isaiah chapters telling us about? They're telling us about Christ, the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, and that we are part of Covenant Israel. Title page, Christ and Covenants. It's what it's all about. Okay, thanks for joining me. We'll talk to you next time.